here's my favorite stat of the whole thing is that Dallas is, you know, their pass, the accuracy is third and their shots is 22nd. It's bottom of the league. It's, it's all pretty, but it doesn't get you uh, goals. Second best from outside the box, though. Suck it, Maxi Aruti. <laughs> Well, hello there, FC Dallas Curious fan. Welcome to Third Degree, the podcast episode number 17. And I'm absolutely positive about that because we had to redo the entire start because I screwed it up the first time. My name is Peter, and today we do have myself. Dan Crook continues his streak of now two straight pods. Hello, Dan. Hello, Peter. I'm calling in today from the comments section on MLSsoccer.com where Atlanta United fans are claiming victory by several expected goals, which is apparently a real thing. You mean you're on the seventh level of hell, right? Is that full of Atlanta fans too? (laughs) I imagine so. And uh, obviously our fearless leader, the founder and co-editor of thirddegree.net, and uh, from the Dallas Morning News, Buzz Carrick, come in buzzard. Hello, Peter, calling in today from the front row of the Edwin Cerillo bandwagon where I've been sitting for a year and a half. Hip stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's uh, enjoy the fact that it's another victory pod. FC Dallas 2, Atlanta 1. At the Mercedes-Benz Robo Rectum, we were used to Luchi Ball, but we got our first uh, peer at Luchi Bunker. Goodness, Buzz, uh, that's a neat little new trick that the team pulled out last week. Yeah, not only formationally, but tactically. I mean, it was interesting to see three center backs, a 3-5-2 that we would call that normally. You insisted it's a 5-3-2, and I can't argue with that. It was totally a And it's execution. <laughs> yeah. I usually do 5-2 just out of the semantics of the way it's drawn, but uh, you can 100% five defensive backs. Uh, Brisson played quite well up until his hamstring problem, which we can talk about later. Um, but on top of the fact that it was just a different formation, they completely, uh, at least in the second half, abandoned uh, Lucci ball and ended up with 28% possession. And that that is complete opposite of what they've been doing all year. Now, uh, when you score an early goal and you're playing against a really good team, maybe you do have a tendency to sit back and, and that is how that works. But uh, Lucci also said that uh, I believe he's the one that said that they need to be better about coming out in the second half. They need to be better at maintaining what they do in the first half into the second half and not not coming out flat and sitting back and letting the game come to them. They need to go out and be active about it. So a uh, very different game than we're used to seeing for sure from uh, Luchi Gonzalez's team. Uh, it was pretty much long stretches of something as ugly as roadkill, but you know the old adage, sometimes you have to eat roadkill to survive. And at the end of the day, there are no terrible wins on the road, are there, Dan? Never. It's the best place to win. Um, you know, saw a lot of give, you know, happily sitting back, letting Atlanta have the ball, letting Atlanta think, which apparently they're not good at thinking on their, their feet. You know, um, if you want to um, let them catch you on the break, just run it straight up. Great, they're the greatest team in history, apparently. Um, but making making the ball think think is just, uh, I mean, through his career, that's been his downfall. Now. We are have been treated to back-to-back games with Jesus Ferreira uh, scoring goals, uh, and I don't think we've given or seen enough credit given uh, to his finish early in the game. That was about as mature a goal you could ever expect out of a teenager. What looks particularly nice from him, and it's obvious in this goal that you're talking about, is that he has a calmness about him when the ball comes into his feet, uh, some patience. He doesn't get overly excited or overly quick with his feet doesn't try and do too much i mean that goal is a simple one touch trap to set the ball up and finish it's clean it's calm it's his run moves him moves him away from the one defender and creates a little space for himself it's just a classic uh calm nine striker type goal and that's for a kid his age that's remarkable i think it's sort of like the you know kind of had the benefit of seeing the complete opposite um, from Joseph Martinez of all players. Every time he's bearing down on goal with FC Dallas players closing in, he takes that extra touch. He takes it too far to decide. He has to pull himself back in and loses it. 
Um, you expect that from an 18-year-old. And, and yet Ferreira's taking the touch to draw the defender in, put himself in a better position and, and slot it around the keeper. He's not, as you say, he's not panicking. He's not just smashing the ball as soon as he looks over his shoulder and sees two players coming in. It's, it, it's, it's composure well beyond his years. And then you uh, continue just to marvel at Paxton Pomacall, who, uh, you know, we didn't get to see a lot of the attacking uh, part of his game for obvious reasons. But I was looking at some stats. Do you realize he, I should have asked this question and made you guess, but I'll, I'll give it up here. He not only leads the team in attempted tackles, he leads the team in one and total tackles, which I find fascinating considering all of this uh you know amazement and and focus on his attacking skills that is quite remarkable uh, you know in this game in particular uh, when dallas sat sat so much of the game deep with eight players behind the ball you know it, there was a collective team effort and part of that effort is to make sure the ball doesn't come through the middle stays wide flanks if they cross it from out there everyone's marked up that's the three center backs trying to help cover martinez but if you're going to sit deep and if you're going to play good defense, especially with a, with a, what's effectively a three-man midfield, all three of those guys have to be two-way players. Pomacall and his two teammates that are in there with him in that game, Cerillo and uh, Grezzo, all, all need to play defense because they all need to clog the passing lanes and they all need to be able to tackle and win the ball off people. Mentioned, Dan mentioning Cerillo, goodness, on the season, and I, I looked this up and I and – Buzz, tell me if I'm reading it incorrectly. Am I right that he, over the course of the season, is hitting at essentially 90% pass accuracy? Yeah, he's been up at that level in the high 80s, close to 90s in every game. Um, it's 89.8% uh, as I just look it up. So, yes, 90%. Um, one of the things that I wrote about when I was scouting him with the 19s was that his his best skill for me always has been uh, when he wins the ball, whether it be a tackle, whether it be by position, or whether it be an intercept or something like that, he's very good about quickly and calmly getting the ball to the people that are going to take the ball forward, to finding his linking midfielders, finding his 10 checking back or his wings. That's one of the key parts of his game is the, is the simplicity of it that helps your team maintain possession and maintain their flow and get them going in the right direction again. And Dan, you are a resident goalkeeping expert. Uh, how about Jesse's uh, performance uh, in Atlanta? That was uh, that was one of the high points of the season so far. Yeah, he was uh, he was everywhere. That was that was kind of uh, crazy. Uh, the t- you know it was kind of funny. The two that he actually looked lost on were the two that that struck the woodwork. Um, one that was really impressive. Uh, Martinez was was really off color, but late on the corner came in. It just deflected off know what was happening and uh, just happened to bobble down to Jesse's right lower uh, bottom corner. And I mean, it was, it was a perfect reaction save uh, as well. When he, when he ran out on uh, Breck shadows a couple of times, second time, not so great. First time deflected away, cut down the option. They really made Breck panic, which appears to be easy to do because uh, I know last year in Vancouver, he made 700 thousand dollars breck shea now i have no idea if he's even getting half that in atlanta but uh boy that's a he, that dude is stealing some money uh from united at this point because i just i i don't know why anybody still has him on the team because he just doesn't seem to be very uh, effective uh and was man there was one point where he must have turned the ball over back to dallas three straight times well, Dallas specifically targeted uh, getting in behind him um, when when he ventured forward. Uh, Lucy agreed with, the, with my assessment that uh, Ferreira played as a center channel nine. This was their game plan. And when they didn't have the ball, Barrios would drop in next to him and defend. But the minute that Dallas got the ball, uh, Barrios' instructions were to look for the gap behind uh, Breck Shea because Breck Shea is going to have checks so far forward. They wanted to exploit that space. The left, too but primarily on the right. And Dallas ended up with like 46% of their attacks came down the right side using that space behind Breck Shea. Well, on the opening goal, that's exactly what happened. It, right. uh, Breck got caught forward. I don't know. Maybe this is just old man me, but sometimes I really, I don't know why I'm so annoyed easily by this, but when you see 
a professional athlete that clearly spends way too much time on their appearance it's all show and no go and i don't i can't even remember the last time we saw something relatedly close to go out of breck shea and i don't know how he continues to get starting work in this league well it seems like to me that maybe he's not that he doesn't love soccer as much as he loves other things but i like breck shea as a person i don't mean to disrespect him but um, it looks to me like a guy who thinks he can make a living playing soccer, and, but is more concerned with other stuff. He's not focused. He's not dialed in. You know, he's not 100% all team. You know, that, that's that's what I see going on. I think there's plenty of skill still there. If he was super motivated and worked his tail off, I think he'd be fine. But you know, I think at this point he's looking for the rest of his life to start whenever he can. Dan, how much, how well do you think uh, blonde dreadlocks would have gone over at Stoke? Probably not at all. I can't imagine. <laughs> Oh, as well as the pig's head in the locker. <laughs> well, I can't help but think uh, how his career would have gone if he would have stayed in Dallas, where he was comfortable, you know, where the team valued him. You know, I sometimes you make sometimes people chase the Europe dream when and they don't chase the right opportunity. They do it just for the sake of doing it. When you got to go to a place where the coach wants you, not just where an agent thought it would be cool. Oh, yeah, no doubt. I mean, uh, there will be studies done and stories told about uh, uh, Breck Shea's career choices and why you shouldn't follow those. And yep. all along, you know, we like guns way more in Texas than they do anywhere else he's played. So I was just going to say in the end, that's the advice I've given any player I've ever talked to that has asked. And th- the same thing that I would say to Breck Shea is the number one and most important thing is playing. And it doesn't matter what country or league you go to, you, you're not going to get on the field if the coach didn't want you. If the coach didn't ask for you to come, if the coach didn't want you to come, you're not going to play. And that'll kill your career faster than anything in the world. Uh, getting, getting back to the game, uh, how much do you guys feel like the success for Dallas in that game was uh, what percentage? And I'm going to ask you to put percentage this. How, what percentage was uh, Dallas's organization and execution on the plan? And how much of it was Atlanta's just a freaking mess at this point? I'm going to say 60 percent uh, Atlanta's a mess and 40 percent Dallas's plan and execution. They had a good plan and they executed it well. But uh, when Atlanta has 22 shots and only eight of them are on target, that's some of that's on Atlanta. I'm going to say 50-50. Um, I think a lot of Dallas's plan was playing into the fact that Atlanta are a mess, restricting them to long shots, kind of taking them out of their comfort zone. Um, even down to, you know, they were pressing um, on the goal kick from, what, the second minute? I mean, that's, that's not something that people generally go into Atlanta and do. After the game, uh, was it Lorenowitz or Parkhurst was saying, this is weird. We need to make people afraid to play in the stadium. And uh, by far, while there was lots of individually or collectively good moments in the game, my favorite has to be seeing Brian Acosta make a dead-on 75-yard sprint into the box on the uh, late breakaway to score the second goal. Uh, just seeing that guy come off the bench after being gone for a few weeks uh, and and uh, show that level of will was really promising and pleasing to see as a fan. I love that he just ran by the defender. Once the defender saw him go, go past, I think it's Parkhurst. He's like, oh, there's no way I'm catching that guy. No, I think it was and, Gonzalez uh, Perez who had was turned it? the Yes, it was Gonzalez Perez who had actually turned the ball over to start mm. that entire sequence and then kind of like half-assed hoofed it. Yeah, And I think Brian Acosta saw him half-assing it, and that's when he realized he had an opportunity. Yeah. Well, Brian Acosta for sure plays uh, in the games we've seen him. He hasn't been here a lot, obviously, but the games we've seen him, he definitely plays with uh, a high level of work rate. And that play is prototypical of things we've seen him do all spring and, and the games he's been here. And the skill of that ball, and we talked about this before already, Peter, that when the ball's coming across your body, to be able to finish it square and not have it spinning away from you is a remarkable piece of skill. The, the margin of error there is tiny. That that play is fantastic. And, and and the skill that he showed in this game and the limited time he was on the field in this game, is that's why in the long run, and that even may even be this week, he's going to be starting again. The guy is just way too good to not be starting. Regardless of how good Evan Sarrio is playing, Brian Acosta is going to be the starter in midfield. Yeah, put a pin in that because I want to come back to that point. A, a couple of other notes uh, about the game. Did you guys notice, I know they talked about it, uh, that there was new turf at Mercedes-Benz. And uh, by the eyeball test, I thought the ball played way better 
this week on that surface. I had heard previously from uh, you know staff and players that the original surface in that stadium was terrible for soccer. That looked a lot better. Did anybody make any comment about it, Buzz, this week in training? Uh, yeah, I um, talked to one or two people about it, and they said that it's phenomenal. It's way, way, way better. One of the best surfaces in the league now for turf. Obviously, everyone still likes grass better, but um, they, they, they praise the turf there now, so I think it's a solved problem, whatever the problem was before. FC Dallas 2, Atlanta 1. I believe that's only maybe the third or fourth loss United has suffered at a Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Uh, No matter how it looked, it turned out to be a fantastic result for the Huntsman. And now coming up is San Jose, which, man, I don't know how to explain this season. It's pretty bizarre. They started 0-4 with a negative 12 goal differential, and since then uh, they are... They've won, I think, their last three. And, and I'm sorry, they've gone two and one in their last three. Uh, they went yep. to they they were in Seattle uh, the other night, last night I think it was. Uh, they scored two goals. They probably should have scored four. I think in the highlights I saw them hit the post at least twice. Uh, and ended up getting a two-two draw in Seattle, which is never anything to sniff at. Um, <clears throat> And I think what will be really fascinating for Saturday's game is this bizarre man-marking tactic that Alameda has put in place that didn't work very well early, but now seems to have uh, caught on with his club and confusing everybody else they're facing. Yeah, you don't usually see at a high pro-level man-marking systems. I mean, you you do see that other places, but not usually this high. so that'll be very interesting. Dallas specifically worked on that. They worked on plays to, uh, you know, separate and get away from man markers and sequences in training this week. Um, and Shea Salinas, of all people, is their leading scorer. So uh, it's they're definitely a, a, a team in flux, a team in, in process of changing and trying to learn a new system and trying to get it all together. So uh, hopefully they're not getting it all together right at the exact time to come to Dallas and, and put up a tough fight. But um, it's going to be a big test. You know, I, at home, you'd expect Dallas to go back to a 4-3-3, hopefully. So uh, we'll, we'll see how, uh, which San Jose team we get. That'll be an interesting question. So, Pete, I had a couple of interesting stats earlier, and I've got one too. San Jose's last away win came in Dallas in August. Uh, since then, they've lost or the last seven um, up until the draw uh, in Seattle. They've conceded at least two goals in each of those eight games. Uh, maybe, you know, you, you've kind of got to look at, like you said, if they're hitting form at the right time, but uh, at least that stat looks kind of peachy. Well, the, you know, I think people probably have forgotten, and for good reason, because it was a horrible <laughs> sight to witness. They they did the double on Dallas last year, and they did the yeah. double on Dallas while they were essentially in last place in the entire league. They were terrible last year. Yeah, two of their four wins on the year. Yeah. Wasn't that, um, the game at their place, Jimmy fluffed two, and in the game here, Jesse fluffed two, or the other way around? That sounds, that sounds right. That sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was the game for both of them that saw them lose the start. Well, it was you know the 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 run into the playoffs was getting a little tenuous, and those were games that Dallas needed. And and if I'm am I am I wrong in thinking that even in the previous season Dallas needed to beat was it San Jose to make the playoffs in the year they missed it, and they lost to San Jose at the end of the 2017 season. So San Jose scored a 93rd minute winner against. Uh, oh, they scored um, another game. Minnesota United, and was. that knocked Dallas out. Yeah, I. You know, I'm fascinated. So the game is Saturday afternoon. It's another day game, and luckily because of the NFL draft, uh, the radio show won't be on. So I'll actually get to go to the game again. I'm excited about that. But I'm fascinated. You mentioned this buzz a second ago. Watching a high level pro team play an all man marking style, there's a bit of yeah. mad, there's there's some mad genius to it. Simply because I, you know you just never see it. So having to be ready to do it and how to combat it is is largely problematic for a lot of teams and maybe why that's once they figured it out themselves it's turned out to be so problematic for the three teams that they've gotten points against lately well one of the one of the un um sung things that may play a little bit into this game because they play the way they play they also foul a lot they've committed 117 fouls and with the way paxton draws fouls and the way this club 
draws fouls. The Dallas may get a lot of free kick opportunities or set play opportunities in this game that they might not get ordinarily. So um, San Jose does attack pretty well. They do have a high, higher number, much more shots than uh, the FC Dallas does. Um, it's it's going to be kind of a chunky game, kind of a clunky game because of the, there'll be a lot more stoppages than we're used to seeing. But so hopefully uh, Ziegler of- can get involved with his little sweet left foot little late. With their style as well, they also uh, I think they're twenty third in the league in shots conceded. Uh, so, I mean, they're giving up opportunities. <laughs> so we're facing the team that gives up a ton of shots against the team that executes the least amount or one of the least amount in the yeah. league. Yeah, yeah. It'll be interesting to see uh, how so that man marking style. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that man marking style is on a you know sort of mid eight mid eighties day, fairly humid with storms either side of it. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the way Dallas possesses the ball, they San Jose if they're playing man marking may end up chasing the ball over the field, and that's uh, they'll you know, be chasing shadows. Yeah. yeah, you you would like to think that Lucci's got a game plan for you know drawing and dragging them out of position and 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 leaving space open for people like Barrios, which leads me to an interesting question, Buzz. Uh, you earlier today were uh, tweeting some formations and lineups and and how maybe Lucci can get his best eleven on the field and with the lack of production from Mascara and Pedroso, um, you laid out the uh, you made the you made the argument that maybe Pax should be playing that left wing position so that you could put Cerio, Grezo, and Acosta in the middle of the field. I'd love for you to talk more about that idea and do you think there's any chance that that'll actually happen? Well, that's not something Lucci has done, but coming into this season, uh, before we saw Lucci put a lineup on the field, Paxton had an extraordinary CONCACAF World Cup, well, not World Cup, excuse me, CONCACAF Championship, playing as a left wing. He was remarkable. And all uh, Oscar played him as a mostly as a right wing, but as a wing. So the obvious thing to me seemed to be, before we saw Lucci do anything, is that Paxton's going to mostly be a winger. He's going to compete with Mosquera, I think, for the left wing because Barrios is a lock on the right. So because there's been a struggle at left wing this season, no one has really grabbed that job, whether it's Baji or Mosquera or Arangis, whoever you've put out there. I think you can't forget that Paxton is a great wing. He does run at people. He can cross. He can get in the cut through like Lucci wants people to do from the side. You know, he's a perfect fit in Lucci's system as a wing. And given how good Surreal's played and given how good Grez and Acosta both play, you only have three central midfielders in this formation. So it, I went back to what I had talked about at the beginning of the year was why not put Paxson on the wing, solve a position that you have not had a great play out of, and you can still get the other three great midfielders on, on the field, the guys that are playing really well. So it's just an interesting idea. I've not seen Lucci use it yet. But I think it's probably worth discussing, and, and maybe at some point he might look at it. Well, Dan, it certainly would put the best 11 on the field as we know them to be at this moment in time. Yeah, uh, you do run the risk of upsetting the apple cart a little bit in terms of what Paxton brings centrally. But uh, our interest, Buzz, how, how, would you, uh, how would you configure the uh, Serio and, and Grace? Would you go with like a with a double pivot or would you kind of move one up to more of a traditional eight? The way I, uh, the way I drew it up originally, um, is the way that they've been doing it lately. When Cerillo has been in there with Grezzo, mm-hmm. it's not a pure double pivot, but it's, it's for sure a Cerillo is a six. And then Grezzo plays as about a six and a half slightly forward to him with Paxton more as a free, uh, more as a real 10. They've done that. A, the couple of games, Acosta has been missing. Acosta is not quite the 10, that um, Paxton is, he has to be more of an eight. So, uh, but I think that that triangle still works with uh, Grezzo, something between a, a deep eight, if you like, and then and Shario is the deep six. I think it's perfectly functional that way. And speaking about all of the academy and youth on the field, Arlo Hollingshad. Uh, asks on Twitter, how far down the depth chart does FC Dallas go this summer in worst case for international call-ups? How young could this roster get? Well, uh, worst case scenario is that Grezzo and Acosta are both gone for Gold Cup and for uh, some uh, Ecuadorian call-up, let's let's say uh, Copa Libertadores. Um, and then you get all three of Cerillo, Pax, and Palm called up uh, for the U20 World Cup. I don't think the reality will be all three, but 
um, the way Cerrillo's playing, he might squeak into that team at the last minute, perhaps all three, perhaps it's just instead of Cervania. But you could be missing five of those guys from your roster out of the midfield. And you would, you'd be looking at uh, Thomas Roberts playing in midfield. Uh, beyond that, I mean, you, you'd have to go really, really deep. I'm trying to think of who else you, you'd even have available, frankly. Um, boy, looking on the roster, you, you'd almost have to dip into uh, – I mean, you'd have to put Arangis in midfield probably. Maybe you'd have to put Mosquera in midfield. I don't think – a Tua Henny or Tua Masi can play like a deep midfield position like that. Uh, it could be sketchy. Surreal has never been called up to the for the national team, has he? He's not. He's never been in any national team. But you have to look at the fact that he's starting all these games in MLS and outplaying a guy that was just Concacaf best eleven in Cervania. So, I mean, why? There's a good chance, a better than even chance, that he's going to get in there as well or instead of. So you could be looking at a really really young midfield. Over the course of, I don't know how many games there's an overlap. I haven't looked that far ahead, but um, you're, you're getting into the territory where you might actually even have to go down to North Texas and call somebody up short term. Technically, there isn't an overlap. Uh, the Copa starts the, oh, there is a one day overlap. The final of the U20 World Cups the day before the start of Copa. So I guess it's going to depend on what the call updates is beforehand. Um, and obviously, depend on the U.S. get into the final. You'd have to think that um, the camps for the Gold Cup will start a little bit further out, right? They, they, they usually give them about a week, don't they? So uh, it's an interesting question. You know, I, I don't think that you're going to lose everybody in time, but you're most certainly going to lose enough people that you're going to have to have some of your super young players in there for a consistent run, uh, whether it be Thomas Roberts or whether it be Arangis, who at this point we might as well consider a super young player because of the amount of playing time he gets. So it'll be a chaotic sequence. Uh, Ja'Cory Hayes may, of all people, have to play a lot in that run. He's the so, guy that's sort of your veteran fill-in guy at this point. So um, you get so to see a stretch of him for sure. There should actually only be one overlap game. Um, the week before um, – they're, they're on a bye week. So the week before is – the 8th of June when they play San Jose away and then they get that bye week so for the uh, the start of the Gold Cup, which is going to coincide with Copa. You're listening to live coverage of Dan Crook analyzing <laughs> the summer for FC Dallas roster situation on the podcast. That was really perfect golf commentary. It was really good uh, roster and schedule analysis, my friend Dan. So Saturday, 2.30 at Toyota Stadium, the Earthquakes come to town with their helter-skelter, willy-nilly, man-marking uh, system, which will make for fascinating soccer watching. Uh, look, if you ever think that MLS games get boring, I have a feeling this one won't be, just simply because <laughs> yeah. the Earthquakes are coming to town with the most bizarre setup you could possibly imagine. I, I don't know how it's going to turn out, good or bad. I just know it won't be boring one way or the other. Uh, the other question was, we got to finally see Brasson start. I thought he looked really, really good. But now I'm really worried that this team's got a hamstring problem. So many hamstrings. Yeah, that's the fourth or fifth one. Um, it obviously is a concern. Uh, he's been actually fighting that for a couple of weeks. It was just a little bit of tightness before, and obviously he never really got over it. So, you know, I, I think in the long run he's a player for the future. You know, they they didn't bring him in to, to take Reto Zico's job like day one this season and and get rid of Reto. I mean, the idea is eventually he's there and Reto's because Reto's thirty three, thirty four at this point. So uh, you know, I I think you saw what they saw in him, and I think you saw what's going to make him a great player for this club over the next several years. You know, I think for now, if he can get back healthy, you'd like to see him spot start a little bit. Now that you have all this confidence in him. I wouldn't mind seeing Hedges and Zigo get a game off here and there, especially as you get into open cup territory or if you start to play some teams that are on really down streaks and you just feel confident about getting them in there and getting them some minutes. I think that would be really nice to see once he gets back healthy. Well, as, as much as I'm enjoying seeing the 4-3-3, uh, there's something about a three, a true 3-5-2 lineup that I think actually helps this team uh, when they do start losing players because they'll have some people in some other places uh, to, you know, they'll have an extra forward they can play up top and, 
and they and I think it's yeah. an interesting allocate or utilization of Hollingshead and Reggie Cannon's talents. For sure, Cannon can for sure run the field like that. That might be asking a lot to do that over game after game after game with Hollingshead. But then you have Nelson who can, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Nelson can play that for sure. You know that you want to see that Nelson get some time in the same stretch, the same heat time. You want to see some of these young guys play Open Cup when that starts up, and you want to see them get some league games when you're playing a team that's on a down. You know, Nelson for sure. Pedroso, don't forget Pedroso too. Could probably play a wing back spot, I would think. I mean, he he doesn't have the style that he likes, which is like the super confident, smooth feet, you know, and the quick passing. But, um, you know, I, there's plenty of pieces that can be interchangeable. The question would be, how do you get Reggie get a game off? Uh, I know Lucci seems to think Hollingshead can go over there, but every time Hollingshead plays right back, he's a mess. So, uh, you know, the question can be, can you rely on Nelson to play right back and give Cannon a game off? Um, or are you ready to go to Reynolds for uh, a whole game or two? Because if you're going to play wingbacks, those guys are going to for sure need time off. You cannot run them up and down the pitch game after game after game in July and August. Well, I, look, I would I would be all for seeing a little bit of more John Nelson. Uh, every time I see that kid play, I'm super impressed. And I know you've been hyping him for a yeah. while now, but... Uh, I hope everybody took notice of the skill move that he made. To, uh, I think he started the sequence for the second goal on Saturday in Atlanta, and he did so with a really, really nice skill move to get around uh, somebody trying to come in and tackle him. So if that's who they got to throw in uh, outside of Reggie to give Reggie a break, I'm totally in for that. All right, let's move on to some miscellaneous stuff. Dallas Cup, the 40th edition, is over. Uh, no, FC Dallas did not win the Supergroup. And in fact, like we talked about last week, um, we are starting to see the effects of having a USL one team in North Texas Soccer Club because the overall performances from the academy and FC Dallas just weren't up to snuff in previous years. The the North Texas effect is af- definitely hitting the academy. Both... Um, to the GA Cup to a lesser extent, but to the 19s to a bigger extent. You know, you're looking at a team that has, over the last few years, graduated uh, Sylvania and Pomacall, who would not have been eligible this year, but they're in the first team. They've lost Chris Kappas. They've lost Chris Richards, both to other pro teams. You know, you've got Thomas Roberts, who's with FC Dallas. You've got uh, Pepe and David Rodriguez have been pulled out of the 17s for the most part to be with um, – the North Texas team. And even there's a couple of kids that have come up from the North Texas team for up from the 17s to the 19s. So you're seeing the slow atrophy of those teams in the sense that uh, the very best players are not with them anymore. They're, they're not, you don't have quite the depth with those squads because you've lost your best three or four players in each one of those teams. So um, it's a trickle down effect with the Academy. We've been talking about coming for a long time and it was definitely on display Um now, the, the, the 17s group that's going to move up to the 19s led next year, those guys are still mostly intact other than Pepe. So you're going to have a pretty nice 19 team next year up until the part where they all start getting signed for North Texas. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it, there, there should be a good team coming in the future that might have a chance to compete. But it all comes down to in the end is how quickly FC Dallas migrates guys up because that's the end goal is they want to get those guys playing at the highest level possible. And they really don't care if they don't win Dallas Cup anymore. They would much rather have all those guys playing for North Texas and winning at the North Texas level. And and that's massively more important than any individual tournament is. And then we had the uh, tournament that was running in parallel, the Generation Adidas Cup, which was won by Seattle, who, by the way, last night at their uh, game against San Jose, had the red carpet out for the kids and had them come out on the field. I thought that was uh, a nice tribute to those guys uh, for winning the tournament. Yeah, actually, I have some thoughts on the GA Cup. That, um, that tournament bugs me a little bit, having watched it up close and personal this time. Uh, to borrow your expression you used about Breck Shea, that tournament is a lot of show and not a lot of go, or all show and no pony, like we used to say. There's a whole lot of stuff going on, a lot of pomp, a lot of circumstance, a lot of signboardage, a lot of fancy programming, a lot of TV shows. But the bottom line is they brought all those teams in and they made them play three games in two days, and they shortened the game down to 30-minute halves. So they completely gutted the competitive value of the games. And the whole point of that tournament is to showcase the talent of the GA teams, is to give those guys 
super high level international competition to challenge them. And when you gut the competitive value of the tournament, you might as well not even host the dang thing because if you, you, you ended up playing only one game of value in the semifinal round, everything else was a mess. So I, they need to, they need to extend that tournament out. They need to move it away from the Dallas cup because it's getting drowned out by the Dallas cup in terms of attention, you know, move it around to let other teams host it, give people a chance to showcase it. It'll be a much better deal. And, and for God's sakes, let them play the regulation timeframe for their age group and have the games have value. What now was the schedule chain? Was the schedule situation a byproduct of the weather or was it set up that no. way from the start? It was set up that way from the start. Really? Dallas always had two games on the second day and one game the first day, and they always were playing shorter periods. That's I, just the way they do it in that tournament. I mean, I, I'm intimately aware of why the GA Cup has been played here in parallel to the Dallas Cup for the last right. few years, but I, I couldn't agree with you more that they've got to send it off on its own. Let it fall. Let it out of the nest. Let it go yeah. on its own because uh, it's also infuriatingly uh, confusing to fans um, you know, somebody called me and said, hey, I heard West Ham's in town uh, in the Dallas Cup. And I was like, no, they're not in the Dallas. No, I, I saw it in the on the website. Yeah. No, they're in something no. called the GA Cup. What's that? You know, and then you just want to <laughs> yeah. eat a bullet. But, there's also there's also kind of like, a, you know, you look at the uh, MLS website and it's all, it's all uh, hyping up. Uh, GA Cup's the greatest thing for for the development of youth players in the country. In the country, it's like. They play 25-minute halves in the group, 35 in the knockout rounds. It make, doesn't make a blind bit of difference. Yeah, that's the biggest thing. Is uh, Moving it would help, for sure. You know, help it become its own thing. And maybe even not even play at the same time. That way you could participate equally with big... You could have team, players that are good enough to do both. But... It's just it's ridiculous that they destroy the competitive value of the games. It's like that that those three things were other than the value of like marquee and making a big splash and selling personalities and like oh my gosh look at these players the actual competitive value is worthless. Well, I mean, if you want to look at a top to bottom academy feat, is it better that Seattle won a you know a, a game that lasted seventy five minutes, or is it better that Toronto won the under sixteens and under twelves in the Dallas Cup? Toronto for sure yes. I mean like one of the one of the opening round games the the combined first and second half was the same length as a real half <laughs> you know 45 minutes plus that? a little injury time is 50 and that's what they played the whole game that day ridiculous. when they played uh, when they played two games I mean FC Dallas didn't make a sub in the first game because they were like what's the point this is basically half time yeah It'll be interesting to hear uh, some of the fallout from uh, people that were participating in it. Uh, it's it's certainly Dallas Cup is greater than uh, GA Cup. Uh, it's it's just there's also there's also sorry, just reminded. Um, there's also a really weird rule in, in GA Cup. You can make five substitutions, which at 25 minutes a half is pointless. But they you have three opportunities to make any substitutions. How does that so, work? Well, they they consider it three moments. So you can as long as there's three stoppages in, in play that you can make substitutions within. So, you you know, you can either make three or you can pop two in at one time. Or... I, you're, I'm confused. You're saying so like in a stoppage of play, like a, a goal kick. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Restart from a, a – what are the three stoppages in play? Goal kick? So, well, no, they, they consider it three moments. So you can make substitutions three times in a game. Uh, Only three times, but you can substitute a maximum of five players. That is really weird. Well, I guess if you're playing 25 minutes, they want to not have you subbing constantly, I guess. Well, it's also why why allow you to have five subs in a 25-minute game. All right, well, let's do our favorite segment, Kit Nerd Talk. Ooh. All right, so, Buzz, I'm going to take your temperature. Are you infuriated Uh or are you delighted at the new Denton Diablo's kit that you've dreamed of for dallas going back 20 years <laughs> i'm delighted i mean if it had white shorts but i'm delighted even with the black shorts it's gonna be fantastic it All looks right. fantastic i mean you know you not think it looks fantastic uh no it does but i i i want to confirm that i'm not crazy i swear sometime prior to the dallas burn rebranding <laughs> when the hunts took over the club and before we ever saw uh, the FC Dallas branding and the red and white hoops. I swear yeah. you had commissioned somebody to draw up 
um, the concept of the Dallas Diablos, and there was a crest with these two really kick-ass-looking devils on either side of the crest, and you had a whole, and you had the red and black hoop jerseys, the whole kit and caboodle, and yeah. it looks like those guys in Denton have taken that entire concept and made it their own. Well, brilliant minds think alike, perhaps, but when we first when we first were talking about a rebrand in Dallas. Uh, those of us that observed the team, wrote about the team, we all, of course, got excited. And and as we do, we thought up our own ideas and shared them with the world. And the one that I suggested from the very beginning was hoops because of what I think about the significance of a pattern for branding. And I specifically said the team's red and black, so red and black hoops. The, the example is Flamengo down in Brazil. They use white shorts. It looks fantastic. So that was our first suggestion. And then when we got into the part of the rebranding, the guy that did my logo, his name was Michael Lamb. He and I had some discussions back and forth, kicked around some ideas, and the ideas we came up with were that we did we did four versions of logos. For we did one for if they keep the Dallas Burn name, we did just to try and rebrand and do a new logo, and that's sort of a skull, uh, cow skull looking logo. It looks pretty good. Then we did one for Dallas Diablos. That was the number two name we came up with, and as you as you say, it has two devils on the side of a shield, one on each side. It looks really good. The third is um, was a Dallas Republic, which was a playoff of the Republic of Texas, obviously. Uh, that one used the horses from the Dallas, um, the city of Dallas logo, that kind of Pegasus, Pegasus look. Yeah. yeah. And then the last one was Dallas Toros, which, um, again, used the uh, skull kind of look that we came up with. And, and so we've been talking about Toros from the very, very beginning of Rebrand, too, for this club. So, um, as a matter of fact, the, the ideas that that we came up with and that Michael Lamb uh, generated, the logos he generated, were so good that we actually arranged, arranged to get them to Greg Elliott, who was GM at the time. And Michael even had a meeting with Greg Elliott. And from that meeting, he worked up some designs with blue and red because they already knew they were going red, white, and blue. Um, and along the lines of using the Diablos, and we did a whole work. He did a whole workup with them, and that from that meeting. In the end, they decided to go with their own internal stuff and do their own bit. But uh, it's definitely true that we uh, a lot of these concepts were floated around. But you know, we we don't we don't trademark them. We don't own them. You know, certainly the name Diablos is a, a name that's out there in the world. And red and black hoops are done by lots of people. So I think it's a really great brand, and I'm glad they're using those brands. And and if they got it from me, great. If they didn't, great too. It doesn't matter because it's great to see it out there in the world and getting used. I don't know if we've ever talked about this on the podcast before, but a little-known fact was the runner-up name that the Hunt family was going to flip the Dallas Burn, flip the Dallas Burn two uh, before they finally decided on FC Dallas. Do you guys know what the uh, the actual uh, uh, runner, the the actual leader in the clubhouse for the uh, rebrand was? I know what the original name was in 96 that they almost were before they were the burn, but I don't know what your second one You're, is. Are you thinking of um, a doom? Yeah. The Dallas doom. No, yeah. uh, uh, no, the, the, the name that I've been told that the hunts that Lamar hunt in particular wanted to name the rename the team was the Dallas stampede. I've actually never heard that story, but uh, I don't hate that. I mean, I can think of worse oh names. God, I hate it. So Dallas doom. Yeah. Dallas doom was worse. <laughs> <laughs> the Dallas Doom story, if I remember the story as it was told to me, is that there was a one sheet that the league sent around to some people with the Dallas Burn branding on it, the logos and the colors, and like as they were sort of putting everything together. And the name of the file was Dallas Doom dot whatever. So like that was the original name. And apparently Billy Hicks vetoed that name and said it was absolutely stupid and made him not use it. And that's how we ended up with Dallas Burn instead. That just sounds like a terrible ultimate frisbee team. Yeah, maybe one of the new esports Overwatch teams. Although they do have Dallas Fuel, so which is worse, Dallas Doom or Dallas Fuel? I mean, I don't want to pile on, but I think Fuel is actually worse. <laughs> <laughs> that team's incredibly popular, though. So, but I'm not what, an e-gamer, so I mean, what yeah. do I know? I mean, that's not my bag. <laughs> um, oh, Dan, and neither team plays in Dallas, so does that. Well, well, that's the common thing. <laughs> Uh, Dan, I want to take. I want to ask you this question. You are the arbiter of what is uh, of this. Who wins, FC Dallas fans in a taco jersey, or KC Sporting fans, Sporting KC fans who get that retro KC Wiz jersey? That retro jersey is sweet. Oh, it is sweet. Yes, and it's so. It's such a simple jersey. It's the cheap crappy jersey that north texas has and they just print it over it it's genius 
and it's it's retro. They should do retro. They should do burn stuff, but that involves foresight and effort and stuff. But we got taco jerseys. Yeah, I can't tell you how much I hate the taco jerseys. The execution was <laughs> terrible on it. It was such a good idea, but the the one they actually produced looked not was nothing like the. Uh, the mock-up one. Oh, I, it, I haven't. It, I haven't seen. I haven't seen either of them in person. So I don't it know. embodies everything I hate about gimmicky, snarky jerseys. It is the worst. I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, I get the spirit in which the taco jersey was thrown together, and as a comedic bit, it you know. Oh uh, yeah, it's fine. But it was I, a jerk. But when I see another club roll out something as just really smart and stylistic as what KC's going to get for a retro jersey. It just reinforces yeah. the fact that the statement that uh, when Mike Miller uh, said, this club has no style, and that's going to that's gonna live with me forever because it, nothing more has ever been more true said about FC Dallas. Uh, the bit was hysterical. The, having the players think that they were really getting that jersey, that was really funny. I, the bit was amazing. Like Actually making the shirts and selling them, though, was just it's See, so they- bad. That could have worked really well um, if it was the if it was kind of like the jersey they presented to the players with Advocare on it. It would have been, you know, there would have been a nice tie-in, and they could have had the jerseys paid for with Adidas, make it look like an actual jersey. Instead, they shrunk down all the images on it to the point where, when you actually see it, what you can see is an oversized FC Dallas badge and a bunch of peach pinky squares, and, and they just put it on a really cheap T-shirt. Well, and they could have been a funny social media bit where they could have had players wearing it and going out in public and asking people what I mean there's a whole litany of things they could have done with it and 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 I don't mean to bag on the concept of the taco jersey. I just I you know, I get wistful when I see other clubs do really cool kick-ass things and um yeah. the extent of what we get here in Dallas are taco jerseys. Well, let's just be clear how good that the the throwback Kansas City jersey is. That thing is gorgeous. Yeah. No. Yeah. That's what we should and talk. And it's something they do every year. They yeah. have a retro night which is brilliant. Uh, you know, embrace your past. You wouldn't be where you are without it. Uh, the the idea that you could get a really nice design of a burn throwback jersey would be fantastic. I mean, I I can't tell you how awesome that would be. Because uh, you don't have to do the whole crazy uh, Mexican pinata design. You could take elements of that and put it across the front of a red jersey, and it would look fantastic. It would look so good. Um, but, I, you know, they can't, they're, they're having a hard enough time selling the deconstructed Texas flag. I doubt Adidas is going to go out of their way. Well, yeah. even, I mean, they're going to have to buy them regardless. It's so Adidas has no say in it. But look at San Antonio. They've put together the Fiesta color jersey. Which you know another yeah. thing that they do every year that is amazing. You know, I, I have no interest in San Antonio FC. Uh, next time I'm in San Antonio, I'm definitely going to poke my head in the door and see if they've got any for sale still. For sure. And then the last thing on the show today, uh, North Texas Soccer Club will play its third game directly after uh, the Dallas San Jose game at Toyota Stadium, and they face the team in last place, Orlando City B, which is the most compound. <laughs> name for a team ever uh but we got a new car to the ricardo pepe hype train as he was called up to the u17s man that's kind of exciting to see that kid go yeah he should be we think this i i think the starting forward for that team through the world cup i mean it's going to be super exciting to uh watch him on the world stage and hopefully he has a great tournament now hopefully his tournament's not so great that he immediately gets sold for $15 $15 million. Well, you know what? If he does, that's fantastic. But, uh, you know, I, hopefully he's going to have a great tournament. And we're pretty sure he's leaving after the North Texas game. So this will be your last chance to see him before he goes uh, in the game after after FC Dallas plays. And uh, I don't know anything about Orlando City B's roster. I mean, I have in front of me, and I don't really recognize any names on it. But the one thing I will get them is at least it's not Orlando City 2. At least they changed it slightly. So that's something. It could have been Central Florida SC. Yeah, well, you know, most everyone's moving away from the whatever two names. Even teams that had that name are rebranding now to actual brands and independent franchises. And they're, all, they're almost all moving slightly away from where their main team is because you can't – it's hard to sell tickets to a team that's playing 20 minutes later. You know, it's you got to you got to get it slightly far away a couple of hours and get it branded on its own and get its own hype built up. Uh, Dallas definitely needs to do that with North Texas. They have the brand right. 
but they they need to move it away. You want to keep training with FC Dallas. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about getting its own facility and getting its own um, perception as an independent, independent franchise. Definitely. Um, just uh, mention uh, Pepe. Uh, he has been given the number nine jersey because you know numbers matter. So uh, matter. you know that that would be a potential indicator of his stature within the uh, under 17 squad. Oh, there you go. And going back to Orlando City B, is there any truth uh, to the rumor that the child of Dom Dwyer and Sidney LaRue is already on that roster? <laughs> I doubt that that would be the case. Cassius, Cassius Dwyer is actually the manager. <laughs> At the age of three or whatever he is. he's No pressure, by the way, if you're the, the child of Sidney LaRue and Dom Dwyer. I mean, good oh, he's, he's already gone viral with that, uh, with that little volley on the bed. Uh, so you're more in tune than I am. I didn't even know about that part. No, that, there was that video that was floating around the internet for a couple of weeks ago, and that was actually their kid. That's what made wow. me ask the question. Oh, they see that was out of the loop. It was so it was so viral. While we're on the topic of North Texas, one person on Twitter did ask if we thought uh, North Texas would ever move up to USL Championship if they're if they just continue to run the table and USL won. Uh, and my take on that would be no, because there's a whole level of expenses that would come with a move to the USL championship that are aside from the point of a USL one team. If anything, they'll just not use as many MLS players and just make it even more and more kids. I think yeah, at some point you're going to end up with almost an entire U19 team playing USL one for North Texas, essentially. I mean, you're also going to get, um, you know, the the B teams that stayed in the USL championship seeing the, you know, the level isn't terrible. The, the costs are a lot, are considerably cheaper and, yeah. you know, it becomes a de facto reserve yeah. league and you're the, see the more, level itself rises. You're going to see more of the USL championship teams that are just two secondary MLS teams drop down. I think that's far more likely to be the case. All right, so 2.30 Saturday, Dallas and San Jose. Everybody can uh, get their tickets to go see Endgame for Saturday night if you haven't seen it already and make it a full day of uh, entertainment across the board. Well, this has been a good conversational podcast today about FC Dallas and all things that implies. Buzz, thank you for your time today and all of your coverage. You're welcome. I'll try that again. Buzz, thank you for <laughs> all of your hard work and coverage. You're welcome. Thanks for having us uh, hosting this. Thanks for hosting this conversation. Oh, my gosh. Dan Crook, uh, thank you as well for taking the time out of your incredibly busy British day. It was lovely speaking with you, gentlemen. I bid you a farewell. Tally-ho to you, too, Tally sir. Tally-ho. All right. <laughs> Thank you, FC Dallas fan. We will uh, talk to you next time on Third Degree, the podcast. Toodaloo.